I invite you to take a Bible now and to open it to the book of Psalms where we will be reading Psalm chapter 8. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pew, we'll be on page 420 and then into 421 for Psalm chapter 8. For me, one of the challenges in coming to Psalm 8 in this week was I had the joyful opportunity uh, two Novembers ago to be asked to preach Psalm 8 at a different church nearby and uh, loved preparing that message for that congregation and loved the time in Psalm 8 so much that uh, in 2022, we began the year by going through Psalm 8 in three parts. And so I've spent time relatively recently in Psalm 8. And so now to come to it again, part of the challenge for me, which uh, I think many of you have a similar experience, if like me, you were blessed to grow up in a home where the Bible was accessible and it was read often and you went to gathered worship, is that one of the dangers is also that you become too familiar uh, with some of it. And so that you come to it already thinking you know uh, what it is you're supposed to know. And so asking God to say, I don't necessarily want to forget everything that I had learned before, but help me Again, not to make this just a dull and a routine thing. Help me to see you again and help me to learn something new about you through this. Uh, and so I, I hope that comes out in some way uh, as we go through this today. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that'll conclude our reading for this morning. the, the previous few psalms that we've been in have had a very different tone and sort of situation around them. We've seen uh, David in the valley grieving and lamenting very serious uh, difficulties and tragedies that have come upon him, uh, mysteries of false accusations that have come that he's had to defend himself against. And here, Psalm 8 breaks forth into a totally different tone where we are encountering the psalmist uh, when they are overwhelmed by God and who he is and the grandeur of what God is able to do. And so we get the the emphasis of the psalm in how it begins and ends in the exact same way. And so it's a a good even thing for us to memorize as we go from this place. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist is is looking at God's creation and he is amazed at the majesty of God. That for every time we might have difficult days and we're puzzled by things that happened around us, there are also unique opportunities when something happens that should cause us to wonder. 
it should cause us to marvel that the world is the way it is. That in spite of all of its brokenness and frailty, there is light and beauty that shines through. And sometimes we need a little bit of perspective in order to see that. Because sometimes there are other things that are much closer to us that then block our ability to take in the great scope of what reveals God's glory and his beauty. It's been one of the surprising things for our family now in living in a new location that we didn't know about before uh, we ended up uh, where we are. Um, When we purchased the home, we we went and saw it during the day, and every time we had to come back to it, it was always during the day, and so we didn't pay attention to which direction it was facing. Uh, And so not until we moved in and then had our first time being inside of it, we then realized that when we're looking out our back windows, we are facing due west. And now where we live, there is a lot more land that therefore gives us the ability to see a sunset in a way that in our first 17 years of home ownership uh, and marriage, we never had a view of. And so uh, we can uh, now, on a fairly regular basis, take in the beauty of a sunset in a way that we hadn't done before. And part of that is where we had lived for 17 years was had other kinds of beauty, but it was an older neighborhood and most of the trees in the neighborhood were 70 plus years old. And so they were big and glorious. But because of that, whether you looked to the north, south, east or west, you couldn't see very far because there were massive trees uh, that blocked your view of things. And so often what's closest to us uh, gets in our way of seeing things. And we need to get to a certain vantage point to where we can take more in at one period of time. Uh, We experienced that then again as we uh, flew to California a few weeks ago. Um, Some of our kids are nervous about heights and it doesn't get any higher than flying up on a plane. And I said, "It's, it's puzzling and it's a mystery, but there is this point where you go from being scared, oh my goodness, what are we doing, what are we doing, to like, wow, that's beautiful. Look at that. I can't believe I can see that. And we got to see that uh, in our children as we were doing that. Like, oh, this is going fast. Everything is shaking. And then all of a sudden, you do get high enough where you get enough perspective that you just are in awe of how really big this planet is. And that is a continued testimony of astronauts who get to go even higher and get to give really above the clouds and above our atmosphere when you hear their testimonies of what it's like to then look back on our planet and almost all of them whether they have a faith perspective or not just are truly in awe of what they see and we all we all need that. We need beauty and wonder. We need to be amazed at times and not just familiar and say, well, of course, it's another day. And of course, the sun was supposed to rise today and it was supposed to set today. Instead of saying, no, it doesn't, it doesn't actually have to. Our bodies don't have to work today. If, if they're working today, it's a, it's a wonder. It's a, it's a beauty. It reveals the majesty of our great God that there is so much goodness and wonder to behold in this earth. And when we are overwhelmed by that majesty, it invites us to worship him. And so that's, the the psalmist is doing that. Just like the other psalms were inviting us to to grieve together, to acknowledge the different pain and hurts that we might feel. Here the psalmist is saying, come and 
Also, thank God with me. Thank him for how creative he is. Thank him for how he has made you and me. Thank him that nothing would exist apart from him. Everything owes its allegiance to him. He is worthy of majesty. And so it's appropriate when we worship him to show others that we think he's really, really special and amazing and not just ordinary. And so uh, it's common in places of worship to try to reflect some of that beauty, just even the colors of the glass here in this room. What do they reflect? They reflect his creativity, that there are jewels in this earth that look like this, that he didn't make it all the same, but he put something of himself in everything that he created so that we can get that perspective and so we have a, a ceiling that, that arches upwards to draw all of us uh, in our gaze upwards to not only look down and at what's in front of us but at times to try to take more of it in and be amazed at the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of our God that's why we gather for worship that's the primary thing we do is to come together and let's remind each other how great and good God is and how wonderful his creation is but in that majesty he also, the psalmist expresses the, the mystery of then God's care for us. Because for us and our humanity, the, the bigger something gets, we eventually get overwhelmed. <laughs> we can only take so much in at one time. We can only remember so much information. And so for us, it's common when things get bigger, we sort of lose sense then of the details. But what David is amazed by as he's expressing that yes God is majestic and he's made everything that we see but he also is able to know each and every one of us and he cares for us that's what verses 3 and 4 say when I look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him why is it that since you know about all the galaxies that exist and you know about everything that's happened in the past and everything that's going to happen in the future, why does what happens today matter? Or what happens in my life relative to the 8 billion uh, people uh, that are on the planet? But the scriptures have insisted from Genesis to Revelation that God knows about everyone and that he in fact cares about everyone and we should have that humility when we come before him to say you are so majestic and it is amazing that you care about each and every one of us this this posture of this psalmist i think is reflected in a parable that is told by jesus in the gospel of luke uh, that i'll invite you to turn with me to luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 4 there's a right way and a, and a wrong way uh, to view ourselves before God. And Jesus tells a pretty impactful, short little story uh, to get to the heart of that. In Psalm, uh, Luke 18, this is on page 824, verses 9 through 14. 
says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, a word of caution as we read this, it isn't helpful if we walk away from this parable and say, well, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Uh, We miss the point if that's our our main conclusion uh, as Jesus tells this story. But here, the tax collector is exhibiting, I submit to you, the same attitude of David in Psalm 8, where he just recognizes God is so great. He's so majestic that he could, if he chose to, just bypass me, just skip over. There's no obligation on God's part to pay attention to him or to address his needs. But also with that is the conviction that he is able to come to the temple and plead for mercy. That with humility, in spite of his uh, sinfulness and brokenness, that he can still come before him and plead for mercy because he is a part of God's creation that he is one of the things that displays God's majesty in this world. And though it's a mystery that he cares for us, it reveals a truth that he is the one who's made us. And so in, in spite of all of our sin and all of our challenges, we all bear his image in some way. We were created in his image so that we can know and believe that we can come to him because he cares for us. Not arrogantly, not God, you have to do this because like the Pharisee, because I'm doing all these good things and haven't you noticed me? Aren't I one of your like favorite children that you should do all these good things for? No, there's a wrong way to do this and that's why Jesus tells the story. But he also highlights the tax collector to acknowledge that what this tax collector and all of his challenge and brokenness still does is he still comes to the temple. He still prays and pleads for mercy. He believes that God will have care and concern for him. And it's oftentimes that we ourselves in our sin begin to think we are unworthy and so God would want nothing to do with us and so we shouldn't even bring our cares or our needs before him. And so even sometimes with good intentions, we find ways to keep ourselves or other people from God because we don't really believe he cares as much as he does care. And in fact, it's the very next thing. If your Bible's still open to Luke 18, you see the disciples of Jesus trying to tell somebody not to come to Jesus. 
this is verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What an amazing, this is now not a parable, this is the, this, the plot is moving on. There are people who are wanting to bring to Jesus little children so that he can bless them. And the disciples themselves are like, Jesus, don't you have bigger things to do? Like, hey, you've got more important work. I mean, they believed he was the Messiah. They had already proclaimed him as the Christ. They knew so many good things about him. And here they are saying, don't waste your time with this. Don't bother him with that. And Jesus has to say, I'm not bothered by it. This is what I want. This is who I am. I made them. They're made in my image. Let them come to me. And every one of you, however old you are, need to learn how to be a little bit more like them. Because it, though it is a mystery to us, it's part of the way that God's majesty is revealed, that he has created us in his image. And we reflect that image not just in our adult maturity, thinking whatever it is we might be able to accomplish, but that image is reflected from the moment we are conceived to the day that we die. It's, it's not about our abilities or lack of abilities. It's not about how smart we are or not. It is about the fact that he has placed his mark on each and every one of us. And that means every human life is infinitely valuable at every stage of life. It reveals his majesty that he has made us in his image and it is mysterious to us, but he's saying that he cares. C.S. Lewis has this great quote about human beings. Uh, this comes from a sermon he preached called The Weight of Glory. But he's talking about how many times we can uh, fail to see God's majesty in the people around us. And so this is what he says. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him, though, to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare." All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked 
to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This doesn't mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. He's saying everybody we meet who, as Psalm 8 says, has been crowned with glory and honor, made in God's image, will be one day revealed in such spectacular ways, either in beauty or in horror, in the realities of heaven and in the realities of hell, that we should have a sobriety that says, we're not ever just dealing with anyone to be looked over. However young or old, all of us, because we are made in his image and because all of us will stand before him one day, should stand in awe of how his majesty is revealed in the ways in which he has created us. It's a wonderful mystery. But then it's also this truth about God that because he has made us in his image, and even as Psalm 8 says, that because that's reflected even in the cries of infants and babies, that he loves and cares about each and every one of us. That it points to that reality that he longs for fellowship with us. He made us relational so that we would be able to commune with him, that we would be able to know him. Much of Psalm 8 is a retelling of Genesis 1 and 2. This is all that he's made, and part of the goodness of that creation in the garden was that there was no barrier in God's relationship with humanity, that he was able to walk in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. And there, there's a barrier now to that reality, but there's a longing we all have for that presence of him in our lives. <clears throat> and there again, it becomes uh, our recognition that there is a mercy uh, that we experience of his presence. So he who has this care for each and every one of us reveals what is also in our hearts that we long to be with him. We long to have his presence among us. And that's the, the unfolding story of scripture is that he cares about us so much that he became one of us. That he became a baby that cried that he was held in his mother and father's arms, that he experienced <clears throat> the fullness of our experience. And that as different people along the way began to discover, oh my goodness, it's not just that you made us, it's not just that you're watching over us, but it's in fact that you are among us, that you are with us, that they began to worship Jesus to acknowledge him for who he was and the majesty and the glory that was due his name because his love was so great for us that he would in fact become like us so that we could experience the mercy and the goodness 
of his presence. And so then so much of uh, Jesus' ministry was bringing along people that the world was happy to look over or had no way of sort of figuring out how to incorporate anymore among other people. And so when he healed those who were suffering from leprosy, he was coming alongside people who were so broken by this world and so challenged, they had to yell out, like, to tell people, I'm sick, I'm sick, don't come close to me, don't get what I have. And again, so in our humanity, what most people would have to do is to isolate themselves and say, we can't have anything to do with you. And Jesus reveals his majesty and his glory and his care by coming alongside them and saying, I'm here with you and I'm going to touch you when nobody else does and I'm going to heal you so that you can come back into the fellowship of other people and experience the goodness of how you were created to be. What a mercy that his presence brought for them. What a mercy that his presence brought for the tax collectors who by nature of their job were so disliked by other people that not many people wanted to invite them over for the dinner party or the Thanksgiving meal. And Jesus in his uh, mercy towards them called them to follow after him in, in Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, and to put him in a group of people that he never would have been a part of before to show him that God really loves him and cares for him. And he wants him to experience the goodness of his presence and then by extension, the presence of other people. <clears throat> and then last, I submit to you in Psalm 8, we see then uh, part of what David is marveling at is yes, God's majesty, his care for us, the goodness of his presence, and then also the ministry that God does through his people. Right? He's, he has given us dominion. He has given us authority to do things. He could do it without us. He could do it better without us. Right? There's so many times where we're like, I know this would be more efficient if you did it with somebody else. Uh, it made me laugh. Uh, this summer I was um, renting a car for a few days and the people in front of me in line who are renting their car, they're sort of the same group of questions you're getting asked as they're going through the profile at the end. And they asked the man, uh, you know, now I just need your phone number. What's your phone number? And he just looked at her and he said, I don't know my phone number. And she said, you don't know your phone number? And so he turns to his wife and he says, what's my phone number? And so then she tells the lady his phone number and he just looks and he goes, I don't ever have to call myself. Uh, and so it, for him, it wasn't surprising at all that he didn't know his phone number. And I just laughed out loud at uh, the way they got along together and complimented each other well. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's true. You don't often have to call yourself. Um, that we are creatures who can only do so much and often try to do the least amount of what we want to do at times. But yet God is relentless to then accomplish his will and his purpose through us. And to have that majesty of his displayed by using us. And we see that again throughout the story of scripture. God went to Moses when he was off in the wilderness having fled from Egypt because he committed a crime. And God says to Moses, you think you are where nobody knows who you are and nobody knows what you've done. I know who you are. I know what you've done. And I'm calling you. And I'm going to use you. When Samuel goes to Jesse's house to anoint a new king, 
They go through all the other brothers. And they're like, nope, not him, not him, not him. Who gets picked? The one who's not even around, who's nobody's looking at, because he's way out in the field, taking care of the sheep, doing his job. He's the youngest. And again, how many days would David have woken up and just said, I don't think anybody knows what I'm doing. I don't think anybody really knows or really cares what's going on. And then to find out, I know you thought you were alone. <laughs> and I thought you thought you were the least likely. But God knows, God sees, and God is selecting you to be the next king of Israel. How amazing is that? Like, who else could do that but the majestic God that we serve? To call people from nothing into his service. In the New Testament, that's most clearly displayed in the Apostle Paul himself. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's revealed his majesty in increasingly beautiful and powerful ways and people are worshiping him. And the church is growing and then all of a sudden it meets fierce opposition. And it's God's majestic plan and purpose to say, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take the person who's right now the most angry, the most upset, the most trying to stop us and I'm going to show him I know exactly what he's doing. I know exactly who he is. I'm going to reveal to him that he's not going to get away with anything. But in that, I'm also going to draw him to me. And I'm going to use him in ways that he would never have had planned or purposed in his mind. Because our God is that majestic and glorious that he accomplishes his will through us even though that he doesn't need us and it does not diminish his glory it magnifies it at one point on our trip um, to California I said to my oldest son uh, everybody just felt like they were behaving very well and doing good and so I, I grabbed him and I said Levi thank you so much on coming on this trip with, with me and he looked up to me and he said, I literally had no choice in the matter. <laughs> and I said, I know you didn't. I didn't ask you if you wanted to come. But do you regret that you came? Oh, no, no. Okay. So thank you for having a good attitude and thank you for coming along. But that is God's plan and purpose. Is He could just do it all by himself. He doesn't need us, but he delights to bring us along, to have us with him that his joy would become ours. And as that joy permeates our lives and hearts, we can say with the psalmist, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do work in the cries of young infants, that when others tried to even prevent the children from coming to you, you stopped them and said, no, let the children come. That though you rule the whole world, you know each and every one of us, and you know our needs. We believe that you care for them, that we can plead for mercy, even in our sinfulness, even in our brokenness, because we are yours. Father, we thank you for that great love. We thank you that you sent your son to become one of us, to show us love in a more profound and deeper way than our, our minds ever could have imagined. 
and as we go forward from this place and we know our struggles and our challenges we thank you that you are determined to work through us to use each and every one of us for your purpose that more and more people would join in the chorus of proclaiming your majesty and so we pray that you would have your way with us amen